Hi, I just wanted to get a note out to everybody, let you know that we're going to be taking a little bit of a break over Christmas, but we'll be back in January, so we'll see you then. Hope everybody has a great Christmas and a blessing-filled New Year. Now let's get to the show. Even though he complained about suffering from laziness and sloth, Martin Luther's time in the Wartburg was one of the most productive ten months of his life, resulting in twelve books, several sermons, and devotionals. The most impressive of his accomplishments during this time wasn't started until December 1521, when Luther kicked off a translation of the New Testament. Records indicate that he arrived in Wittenberg in March of 1522 with the completed first draft, a mere 11 weeks after he started. Luther's translation of the Bible has reverberated through history, commonizing the many dialects of medieval Germany, while also capturing the majesty of God's word, resulting in a frustrated compliment from Luther's Roman Catholic adversaries that even tailors and shoemakers, yea, even women and ignorant persons who had accepted have accepted the, this new Lutheran gospel. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I'm Evan Gertner. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a discussion on the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. After the Diet of Worms, Luther was kidnapped by friends and hidden in the Wartburg Castle, just outside the city of Eisenach. Coincidentally, this is where Luther spent his teenage years. Although he left the castle a few times, he pretty much stayed in his room for the next 10 months. Now, Luther continually wrote to his friends about, and we talked about this, I think, in the last episode. He talked to his friends how much he hated being in the Wartburg, called it My Patmos. That's in reference to St. John the Evangelist in his exile on the island of Patmos. Uh, he also called it the kingdom of birds in the realm of the air. Uh, he said once that I'd rather burn on live coals than rot here. So, not, and, not real fond of the Wartburg castle. And I think it's just that sense of exclusion from other people that he was connected to. And also the diet was much richer in meats and other foods. And um, he found himself sick. Yeah. And I mean, not only that, I mean, he was, I think maybe, maybe you know, you touched on it a moment ago, that that back and forth with other theologians, that daily, you know, jar, you know yes. jousting back and forth and, and ideas. He couldn't get that. He was actually specifically told, don't show any interest in any written words. So he was literally locked out from any of the debates or very, it was very difficult for him to, to participate in any sort of debate. But it was anybody. not an unproductive time. No. Even though in his letters, he would describe himself as lazy and slothful and pretty much just sitting around. Yeah. Actually, you know, really nothing could be further from the truth. He was, uh, it was really one of his most productive periods. In July, after about four months in the Wartburg, Luther wrote to Melanchthon, I should be ardent in the spirit, but I am ardent in the flesh, in lust, laziness, leisure, and sleepiness. Uh, but actually, it's, you know, it was, he, he got busy, though. Yeah, he did. And, you know, so we had hoped to cover pretty much everything that happened in the Wartburg in this one episode. But there was just too much. So we're going to break this up into two episodes. This first one... Uh, we're going to be talking about, um, well, like this last, last episode, we talked about, uh, the events at when, um, in Worms and on the way to Worms, uh, from Worms to Wittenberg that were leading up to the rebellion and put them into the next episode. In this episode, uh, we're going to be covering, dealing with some of Luther's major accomplishments while he was in the Wartburg. And then we'll be covering the many changes in Wittenberg in our next episode. So before we dive into Luther's accomplishments, I, I think it's important to get a little bit of context. Uh, while he was in the Wartburg, uh, Luther's opponents took uh, his disappearance as an opportunity to, uh, to, to try some things out. The first attack uh, against Luther was from Emperor Charles V. Charles knew exactly how he felt about Luther at the Diet of Worms. He had broken protocol to yell at Luther at one point during the discussions. No! He said. Yeah, the character was supposed to be that Charles V didn't make any public speeches and everything were made through his agents, but instead he ended up speaking personally. Yeah, which was extremely, like, like unlikely. Uh, and then right after he wrote the Edict of Worms, or once the next day he wrote the Edict of Worms. and the So edict, after Luther had made his Here I Stand speech. after The, the day after the Here I Stand speech, uh, that night, the, the emperor wrote the Edict of Worms. 
And so the Edict of Worms was the emperor's proclamation of his resolve to uphold the teachings of the Roman Catholic faith and his rejection of the Lutheran teachings, of Luther's teachings. Now, this Edict of Worms was published throughout the Holy Roman Emperor, but it was not officially published in Frederick the Wise's lands of electoral Germany, uh, of Saxony. Yeah, and, you know... the, the I was reading up on this, and they were like, "Why? Why would he? The 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 writers that I I was reading were why would he hold off?" And they gave a few ideas. the 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 first one was that you know Charles owed Frederick a favor since Frederick significantly helped uh, Charles with the election to the position of the Holy Roman Emperor. Charles maybe thought that Luther's teachings would be similar to the teachings of Jan Hus, which remained popular in the area around Prague for a hundred years but never went further. So maybe he speculated that Luther could be isolated. Yeah, and probably most likely they thought that he did a political calculation, that it was better to let Luther live in exile than to make him a heroic martyr. And, you know, that's 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 that one rings true to me. Mm-hmm. So you attack Luther in Saxony, it just raises up the um, the vigor of the Saxons against the emperor. Yeah. Yeah, so that that seemed most likely it did some sort of political calculation and decided, you know, it's not worth it. Let's let's just let this one lie and then try and isolate it like the Jan Hus, sort of like what happened to you. Let's try and keep it as isolated as possible. Now, the Edict of Worms is also what gave declaration for why Charles V would continue to fight against Lutherans. And Charles V, for his whole life, maintained his opposition to Lutherans. He ended up retiring uh, resigning his position and spent his final years in a monastery praying for the the end of the conflict and the ceasing of the disruption of the church. Yeah, so he was he was a good Roman Catholic. There's there's no doubt about that. He uh, uh, now it wasn't just a political attack on Luther. There were there were also theological attacks on Luther. So Jacob Latimus wrote an attack on Luther's theology. Using biblical references. Now, that was the first time that anybody on the papal side had used, uh, developed, that I was able to find, a completely biblical attack on Luther. And so Luther took this very seriously. And uh, so he, uh, now, I guess Laudamus was a professor at the University of Louvain in Belgium. Um, and he was, uh, uh, he was really, he, he really attacked the humanists a lot, especially Erasmus. Um, early on, he saw Luther as just an extension of Erasmus's circle of humanists. And so he was very early on an, uh, an opponent of Luther. Uh, and so he had kind of bundled Erasmus and Luther together under this humanist umbrella. And he writes a book first against Erasmus, and then he writes this uh, effort against Luther and his book against Luther reached the Reformer during his stay at the Warburg on May 20. We actually know the day that Luther received Laudamus' book. It's May 26 in 1521. And Luther felt that a reply was necessary. But he didn't want to take the time from his translation of the Bible to answer. But the book dealt with the heart of the theological controversy. So he, he did answer it in 1521. Okay. And, and so from what I understand... Laudamus's attack on Luther really focused on the meat of Luther's teachings, which was good works, free will, and the sacrament of penance. And we've spent a lot of time in this podcast going over all three of those, I think. I, I guess we there's still room to talk about free will, but uh, definitely good works and sacrament of penance. We, we spent a lot of time on those two. Um, he also talked he attacked Luther's positions on virtue, knowledge, purgatory, and uh, probably the most important uh, was the issue of the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and and how we are all condemned by this commandment. And so Luther says everybody's command, condemned by thou, that we are uh, uh, idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories, that we, we worship all sorts of things apart from God. And Laudamus attacked that position and said, no, no, there, it is possible to, to truly love God and have no other gods before him. And so if Laudamus makes that statement that a man is truly capable of loving God and, and having faithful devotion to God, 
what's the fault with that? Is that Christ is no longer necessary. Yeah, it can be, all the work can be accomplished by us. And if the work can be accomplished by us, then for what purpose did Christ die? Right. And that's the attack. Now, noteworthy, I think, for Luther's writing is there is no library at the Warburg that Luther could draw upon. Laudamus makes biblical quotations, and he also makes quotations from the church fathers. And it was Luther's practice generally to not assume a person was correcting the Bible correctly or assume they were correcting the church fathers properly. He would uh, reference his own library in Wittenberg as he was responding to people and evaluate, did they quote the Bible properly? Did they quote the church fathers in proper context? He doesn't have a library at the Warburg. And so he answers Laudamus and opposes his quotations of the Bible, opposes his use of the church fathers all by memory. That's incredible. That is so impressive. And it speaks to what, uh, I mean, a smart guy Luther is specifically, but also just, I think that can only happen if you are regularly in the word and regularly reading uh, what the church fathers were saying about the Bible. I think it's a witness to how much Luther in his teaching and his own devotion was seeped into the word so that when he comes to defend the word, he can do so from memory. And it's, a, I think, a good explanation for why anyone today, even as smartphones are so uh, making the Bible accessible, I have an app on my phone uh, that I can look up anything Luther's written. I can look up the, the anti-Nicene fathers, the post-Nicene fathers. I can look up everybody. And yet I th- still think there needs to be enough familiarity that maybe I don't have to look it up. I, I kind of know where it is, and maybe I'll look at it myself. Interestingly, on Friday, my boys and I, we were out for dinner, and we had a question about how many spots in the New Testament is Balaam and his donkey referenced. referenced. And I'm like, I don't know if it's referenced at all in the New Testament. And they're like, oh, I'm sure it is. And so they pull out their, their smartphone, and they were right. Really? Yeah, they were right. So my, uh, I've, I've got to work on my drawing on things without a library, I guess. So well, Luther discusses sin and grace, law and gospel, justification and sanctification, and it's a, an entertaining um, defense. Luther starts with an attack on Laudus Miss Opening, and he goes through and disputes with him point by point. And as we were getting ready for this episode, Mike, you and I were talking about how Luther also defends his his use of language and aggressiveness. And his point is that when ecclesiastical authorities are in opposition to the word of God, they must be met. And we cannot just defer to them because they are our authorities. And, and you know, that's that, I think that's one of those areas that so many of us, uh, I'll just speak for myself, you know, it's it's easy to play patty cake with people when it comes to these things, and and to sort of just be gentle, just be uh, probably a little bit too gentle. Now I want to create waves. Yeah, and I know if I've preached something and someone has a question, I love when someone comes to me during the week. Maybe they'll send an email and they say, "I heard you preach on this, uh, but I have some questions." I love that dialogue, and I think. Um, uh, our pastor's relationship with his people are richer when they are comfortable in challenging him on something he's taught in a Bible study or preached, and that any pastor who is afraid of that, um, well, then they just got to take some humble pie and and be ready for that dialogue. Yeah, I I think it's also important to remember when Luther says this kind of stuff, uh, and I'm thinking out loud here, he's talking about teachers, you know, and teachers talking to teachers, Mm -hmm. you know, us, you know, laity. Those who have placed themselves in a position of authority and said, I am the shepherd of these people. And and Luther's point is, if they're a shepherd, but they're doing it wrong, they're as bad as a wolf. Yeah. And it's sort of, uh, uh, it's, I guess when it comes to the, the sheep, my, my position is always, you know, well, I, I work to earn the right to speak into this person's life. Because I'm not, you know, I'm just an engineer. It does take some opportunity to listen. And maybe instead of the first response after a sermon is to attack the pastor, is maybe to ask him, can you tell me more about why you said what you said? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and so that's Luther a whole discussion. Not, yeah, Luther's Luther. first response is usually not, tell me more about why you said that. <laughs> no. But Luther is dealing with, with you know, other college professors, the Pope, uh, the various nuncios, uh, papal nuncios. I mean, he's dealing with some pretty high-powered theological people who should be able to handle, you know, a, a theological debate. 
Anyway, the whole thing is pretty entertaining. Uh, I, and, I, I and how does Luther start? He starts with an attack on even Laudus, Laudamus's opening, and then he goes through and disputes with him point by point. Uh, Mike, we're not going to go point by point. No, no, no. Um, no. It is in Luther's works, uh, the American edition, volume 32, and it, it goes from about 100, page 137 to, oh, where does it stop? 264. So it's about 130 pages. Okay, pretty, not real long, and like I, like we've mentioned, it's pretty entertaining. It's, it's a good summary of Lutheran theology in an entertaining format, if you like Luther's Well, I think one attacks. of the, the, the strengths of it is that Luther um, does not just say to his opponents, trust me, it's in the Bible. And this is maybe some challenge of Protestants. Sometimes we just say, well, it's in the Bible. Look in the Bible and you'll see why I believe it. Uh, Luther is quite willing to engage in a point-by-point discussion of why is it he is advancing what he's advancing. And he never just settles with it. It's in the Bible, so shut up and sit down and listen to me. He's willing to say to Lodimus, you've raised some points. Here's my answer. Yeah, yeah. And and um, I'm going to read just a short... uh, Lodimus attacked Luther for being harsh. Luther responds, According to such teachers as Lodimus, in our day we show evangelical modesty when we kneel before before goddess, godless and blasphemous bishops and sophists every and say, Gracious Lord, your grace does well. Distinguished Master, your excellency speaks well. But if you tell them what they are, ignorant, stupid, godless blasphemers against God's word, doing incalculable damage to the service of God and souls, then you are the one who offends against the whole gospel. So not holding back any punches there. So, Mike, his point is, who does more offense to the gospel? The pastor who is attacking the bishop when the bishop is doing wrong against the gospel or the bishop who does wrong. And Lodimus's point is essentially, Luther, you should defer to your superiors. You have done damage to the gospel by attacking your superiors. Right. And when we look at um, uh, Luther's you know, discussions with Melanchthon about sin boldly, we're going to get into this more, what that means. Yeah. Of, in defense of the gospel, there's some room to say, I've got to be aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, again, a good thing to read. Um, we don't have time to cover a whole lot more of uh, Against Laudamus here. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, so we're, But it's a good scholarly, scholarly defense of Lutheran theology. Yeah. And if you want to see how does Luther defend his teaching in the face of someone that makes some pretty pointed attacks on him, he doesn't just resort to verbal... Um, shotgun approach of attacking Laudamus. And I think one thing is we, there are websites where you can, there's a website where you can type in and it's almost like a, a pinwheel of different attacks of Luther. And you can choose different. You've mentioned that a few times. We've got to put the website. We, we do the... need to get a link to that. But I think one thing is, is that Luther in general is not just an ad hominem attack. He doesn't just destroy a person's argument by attra- attacking them as a person. Um, even Archbishop of Mainz, he shows deference to him as his Archbishop. Yeah. Um, ultimately, Luther attacks not the person, but the position they take. Yeah. Yeah. Although he does do it creatively. Yeah, he, he does. All right, so let's move on against um, Laudamus and now um, look at how Luther also dedicated a huge part of his time in the Wartburg to the question of monastic life. Yeah, now he had previously discussed that it wasn't right for children to take monastic vows. What would happen is a family that could not afford to raise a child would give their child to a monastery to raise, and they would make um, monastic vows on behalf of that child. So a child may enter the monastery when he's seven, and for the rest of his life, based on a vow, be required to live at that monastery, even though the kid was only seven years old when his parents dropped him off there. So Luther speaks against that. But now, as he's at the Warburg, the question is arising, should all monks, not just those whose vows were taken when they were children, but all monks, should they revoke their vows? So Luther comes out with something that says, you know, eventually it comes to the conclusion that says, marriage is good, virginity is better, but liberty is best. So the freedom of a Christian yeah. is what he's looking at. And basically the starting uh, point is that if a monastic vow rests on the false assumption that through this vow I have a special calling that makes me superior, then that should be 
taken away. That kind of vow is of no good. Yeah, Luther is saying there's no superior Christians. Each person is called to their own tasks. And the problem with a monastic vow is that it's taken, and he says it's taken in a fit of piety, uh, which restricts our liberty to discover the task that God has given us. And I actually, that that one rings true to me. I mean, that's a, that's a really, you know, when we take a vow for the rest of our lives, um, that, that puts us in a place where, you know, if God had other things planned for us, if we have other tasks that are assigned to us, those tasks aren't going to happen if they bump up against that vow. Have you had any struggles with this in employment? Uh, you think about the career that you've taken as an engineer and moments of, am I always going to be an engineer? Is this what my life is? Have you felt locked into that? Or have you felt, I will do this because I'm good at it? Or have you felt locked into it? That's a, a interesting question. I, I've, um, I've always had, uh, I guess, engineering is a unique field because... Engineers, you know, many CEOs are engineers. Many uh, marketing people are engineers. Engineering is a great launching pad to a bunch of different fields. But as you and I have talked, you've kind of stayed rooted in the science. Yes. I mean, you, I know you've done more than just be uh, a guy with the math of engineering, but you're still pretty rooted in the technical side of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I enjoy it. And that's, I, I that's it. I suppose, the liberty of it. Yes. If you didn't enjoy it, you know that you have freedom to go do something else. I, I, I watch what the sales guys do every day. You know, I, I actually I travel all over the world, and I, I support the sales staff in Europe and, and Asia a lot. And so I, I spend a lot of time there uh, working with the salespeople, and I am so thankful I'm not You a don't salesman. envy them. Huh? I do not envy them. Uh, the, the, the late nights, the drinking, the, the, the dinners, the... The uh, um, and then all the paperwork and worrying about you know it's like it, it's I, I would rather deal with with engineering you know the the product talking with mechanics dealing with you know the the you know what how are the products being used in the field that sort of thing I uh, that I find that fascinating I you know to deal with paperwork and and dinners and all that that's not for me I I'm, I like getting my fingernails a little bit dirty. So Luther's perspective on monastic vows is that if it's taken as a lifelong contractual vow in a moment of uh, piety where you think you're superior than other people, that you become blind to how God may be using you later in life. Yeah, yeah, that's what I took away from this. And so now we have this uh, section of sin boldly. Now this was... Uh, when. <laughs> I've heard this term over and over again. It makes again. for some t-shirt slogans. Yeah. Yeah, and sin boldly the the you know Luther Luther says sin boldly. And what was interesting it's while he's at the Wartburg is when this he sends this letter that says sin boldly to to Melanchthon. And it's in the in a context of controversy. So it's a private letter that he writes to Philip Melanchthon who is another professor at the Wittenberg um the University of Wittenberg and while it's become one of Luther's most famous writings uh, since some have taken this as license to ignore the law of God. Um, it, it's been, and partly because so many people have mischaracterized this sin boldly statement. Uh, was, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the, one of the very... A great 20th century theologian great 20th, of Germany. Yeah, he, he, he spent a lot of time talking out against it and his cheap grace uh, th that was all that whole cheap grace section. Everybody's uh, many theologians or pastors are familiar with yes. cheap grace, but when you read it, it's actually about sin boldly. He's actually refuting sin boldly, uh, or he's refuting a mischaracterization of sin boldly. And it, it jumps into this idea of cheap grace. And it, it's a, it's a long discussion, but it's, it's good stuff to read. Now we've used Kittleson as much of the the biography material for Luther so that we can place what Luther has written into context. And where Bonhoeffer tackled the problem theologically and trying to look at the context in which people were presently using that phrase, Kittleson goes after it from more of a contextual perspective. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I like I said, I really, I've, I, my friends always tease me. I read Bonhoeffer so much, but uh, you know, this was, this is a really good way to go after it. So let's start with the actual letter from Luther. If you are a preacher of grace, then preach a true and not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. God does not save people who are fictitious sinners. Be a sinner 
and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. As long as we are in this world, we have to sin. This life is not a dwelling place of righteousness, but as Peter says, we look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It is enough that by the riches of God's glory, we have come to know that the Lamb takes away the sin of the world. No sin will separate us from the Lamb, even though we commit fornication and murder a thousand times a day. So, <laughs> so after reading this, some people will say, yeah, we'll only hear that sin boldly, commit fornication and murder a thousand times a day. But they sort of skipped that whole middle Is that section. what Luther meant? <laughs> uh, probably not. <laughs> probably not. But he's writing to Melanchthon, uh, and Melanchthon was kind of Luther's right-hand man, and they're trying to figure out how to rework the Roman Catholic Mass so that it is uh, gospel-focused. So Luther was uh, specifically addressing a declaration from Karlstadt that said it was a sin to withhold the wine from the laity. So here's the controversy. There is the Lord's Supper, and during Martin Luther's time, the clergy would receive both the bread and the wine, the body and blood, but that the clergy would only offer the bread, the host, the body of Christ to the laity. They would not receive the wine. And now Luther has earlier over the last couple of years made points about how the words of institution make reference to the disciples receiving both kinds. There's no room in scripture to withhold the wine, but he hasn't actually introduced the practice yet. Right. So Luther was telling the length on, listen, you know, if you change the mass, you're going to be sitting, and this is just paraphrasing, you'll be sinning because you, you'll be creating discord within the church. But if you don't change the mass, you'll be sinning because, well, the Bible is clear that the bread and the wine should be shared with the laity. So go ahead, sin boldly by making the changes to align the mass with biblical teachings because it's the right thing to do. And this matches with uh, his writing against Laudamus as well. He is trying to figure out which is worse, discord in the church or hiding the gospel. And he determines that if you're going to hide, uh, if you're going to cause discord in the church, do it boldly for the sake of the gospel. So the context of the phrase sin boldly is if you have to decide between upholding the unity of the church or upholding the gospel, Uphold the gospel in such a way that you create a lot of discord in the church. Yeah, is that it, it, kind of what it, it is? That, that's what I'm hearing. That's yes. what I'm hearing. So it's, uh, you know, it was, uh, it did create a lot of discord in the church. This whole, and well, we're going to cover that actually more in the next episode. Because Andreas Karlstadt was the dean of the college in Wittenberg. He was, in many ways, uh, Luther's boss. And and as we look at Karlstadt, um, while Luther is in the Warburg. He writes to Melanchthon a lot, but it's Karlstadt who's in charge. And so Karlstadt's the one that's making changes in Wittenberg while Luther is at the Warburg. Okay. And so there is this tension of Luther trying to get Melanchthon to keep Karlstadt under control and to influence change. But Melanchthon is not the authority. And, and also Melanchthon's not as feisty no. as, as Luther. So... But we're gonna, like I said, we're, we're, that, may, that's gonna be a big. But maybe it's good that uh, Melanchthon is the guy on charge there, uh, not in charge, but in place there, because he doesn't go, you know, bull into a china shop. Well, that's true. He's got some desire for unity yet to remain in the church. Yeah. Well, Luther, Melanchthon understands and performs the first evangelical sharing of the bread and wine. Oh yeah. With a few students, and the sharing of the bread and wine did create a lot of controversy within Wittenberg. But at least in the beginning, uh, Melanchthon and Luther thought it would be in the midst of those students who understood why they are receiving the bread and wine. They are receiving it because that's the very command of Christ. That they're not receiving it just to put a pie in the face of the Roman Catholic Church. They're receiving it because it's the command of Christ. Right, right. Well, let's take our beer break. Okay, well, uh, this one is from... Uh, uh, this is Witch's Hat Brewery in South Lyon, Michigan. I, I actually stopped by there at, at the at the bar. Had a, a, a actually they had a a Kolsch I wanted to bring into here, but they didn't have it in bottles. So what we're going with is Edwards Portly Brown. It's uh it's a brown ale, American brown ale of uh, with uh, description is a malty, chocolatey, and robust brown ale. 
Named after their beloved Springer Spaniel, uh, I'm assuming Edward. So uh, they said uh, toast tasting notes is chocolate, sweet malt, toasted bread, light brown sugar. Food pairings are saying uh, sharp cheddars, dark chocolate desserts, and prime rib. I taste the chocolate, I taste the malt, and the toasted bread. Light brown sugar? Not as strong. Not so... And I think that's good, actually. I Yeah. But, but I do taste the sweetness in my cheeks. Like I, the I, inside of my cheeks. So maybe that's the brown sugar. Yeah. It's... You know, I always like brown ales. Brown ales... When when I used to brew, and I... I, I act like I brew a lot, but I, I haven't brewed in decades. But when I used you to... You have brew, more knowledge than me. <laughs> but when I used to brew, I used to like making brown ales because they're they're a simple beer. They always come out easy. They always come out good. It's, it's a... Good, good beer that you can brew yourself. It's a, probably the the first beer most brewers do is a is a brown ale. It's a very simple beer to brew. So thank you to Witch's Hat for an excellent, excellent multi chocolatey robust brown ale uh, called Edwards Portly Brown. Now they they one of the nice things they do there is they sponsor four cages at the Humane Society in Huron Valley with proceeds from this particular beer. Uh, they said they've saved over 50 animals and uh, donated $5,000 to to date uh, to to the Humane Society. So that's that's a nice thing. We always like to see the... And they've moved. Uh, they used to be just kind of in a, a, a small little storefront, strip front, uh, strip mall. And the tap room now is triple in size and they gave space to grow uh, based on community's demand. And they're now in 601 South Lafayette. Oh yeah, it's a they're they they're really they're this was Josh said this was one of the best beers in southeastern Michigan so uh, I wasn't disappointed this was a this was a good one so let's let's uh, jump forward to back to the even uh, back to Luther so he is holed up at the Warburg Castle uh, he is growing a beard he's being known as Junker George Knight George or Squire George um, and he has been instructed to not demonstrate familiarity with written material so but even though here he is he's he's holed up in the wartburg castle he's still a force to be reckoned with we have uh cardinal uh albrecht of Mainz. uh he he's, he's the guy that started everything because he is the one that had the indulgence sale that the 95 theses are written against and albrecht of Mainz has a lot of bills that needed to be paid. That's why he was selling the indulgences in the first place, because he had to pay back a loan to the Fugger family. And so he, now that Luther's out of the way, he thinks, man, maybe I'm going to be selling some more indulgences. So he starts to sell the indulgences, and when Luther heard about it, he wrote to the cardinal. And he writes, I beg you, show yourself not a wolf but a bishop. I will show you the difference between a wolf and a bishop and a wolf. I demand an answer. If you do not reply to me within two weeks, I will publish a tract against you. Now the cardinal replied that he had already stopped selling the indulgences. And then this is remarkable. And Albrecht of Mainz is a really fascinating character. He proclaimed himself to be a stinking sinner ready to receive correction. And this is not him just trying to prevent Luther from writing his tract against him. I think that Mainz, Albrecht of Mainz is a humanist. He is, uh, he is a remarkable character of all of this. He is not a flat Stanley, just a flat piece of paper that you can draw him a certain way right. and put him on the flannel graph as the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. He is a pretty mixed guy. Yeah. Uh, mixed character. Yeah. He, there's so many of these people that are really becoming much more human than they have good sides and bad sides. It's really a fascinating story. Although when you were in Wittenberg and you went to the Luther Museum, did you notice uh, the artwork in which Albrecht of Mainz had himself painted into famous scenes? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, so he commissioned artists uh, to paint famous scenes, and they would put his face into those famous scenes. <laughs> so, <I> guess... <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed that. Yeah. Oh, oh well. Well, now let's look at one of the main things that Luther does while he's at the Warburg. Luther is best known for his translation of the Bible while he was in the Warburg. Now, I said translation of the Bible. But he did not translate the whole Bible in those 11 weeks. He no, focused on the New Testament. Just the New Testament in those 11 weeks. And now the thing is, is that there were already, and the, I, I've heard this over and over again, there were already 
multiple copies of the Bible available at this time. Uh, the, the what I've read was about over at least seventeen versions of the Bible. Some people think that Luther had the first German Bible. That's not true. There were actually several copies, but his copy is the one that's most uh, easily published and, and changing of the the whole understanding of the German language. Well, and you know, the fourteen were middle high dialect, three were low dialect. Um, the, the, many of them were from 1466 to 158. Most of them were printed starting in about 1466. Uh, they, what I did was I, I, I got a couple of, uh, a couple of, I did a, a, a Google search on, on the Bible. I found this was interesting. And so Google Translate is obviously working with 21st century German. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so you I, put, I took Luther's Bible, Luther's translation, and put it into Google Translate. And this is what it says for the beginning, the first, the first few words of Genesis. Okay? And it goes, In the beginning, God blessed him and the earth, and the earth was desolate and empty, and it was dark as hell. And the Spirit of God was floating on the water, and God spoke, Let's go. And it was made. So, so I mean, it's pretty down to earth. It's, it's understandable. Um, it, it's pretty close to our. Pretty close, yeah. You know. Now the Koberger Bible, which is one of those contemporary German translations, um, Google Translate got flummoxed by this. <laughs> it. Really did. Why don't you read that? Okay, okay. I'm going to take a shot at it. Some of these these words are, I'm going to stumble on. They're not on. words. They're I not mean, words. But I'm, I'm going to take a shot. At it. In the beginning, got got hymnal and uh, him, himmel and earth. But thy earth what idle and empty, and the Vinstronus worn the face of the abyss, and the spirit got swept or was carried on the waters and got the language, it'll be fine. That's what it's been like. Now, I think what this demonstrates is that modern German has been shaped by Luther. Yeah. And so the Google Translator didn't understand the Koberger Bible because those vestiges of the German language that the Koberger Bible was using have been set aside. Yeah, yeah. And now, so, fun things with Google Translate. Now, my wife, as she teaches Spanish, she can tell when a student in their essay has just done Google Translate. And and even here with Luther's, we can see a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, this, this wasn't meant to be, you know, a, a sign, but it did want, I did want to demonstrate how how off i guess the one thing that jumped out at me was this this part where they said the 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 spirit got swept or was carried on the waters where they there's like when when you're translating often there are different ways that it can go different ways the translation can go and so it looks like what this translator was doing for the Koberger bible was he was going and writing a bolt down you know, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's going to be that. And it doesn't really make for a good reading, but it's sort of a, they're, they're, it's sort of a, a, some people would say ham-handed sort of uh, way to translate. And it's very, translating is very difficult, I understand, but this is translating something like the Bible. But I think when I've read the critiques of those old Bibles was that they, they tended to be like this, where it was just trying to take the words and put them, okay. Put every word on the page. You put can. every word on the page that you can. And where Luther, what Luther did was he took the, the, the words of and the, the force and, and the force of and the, the, and he went, was the first one who went back to the original Greek. Well, and we'll get to that. Let's oh, yeah. talk a little bit about, uh, just the translations that Luther was, uh, placing his translation next to. Several scholars believe that these uh, multiple translations of the Bible into German that were around during Luther's time came from the Waldensians. The Waldensians were started by a wealthy merchant named Peter Waldo, who gave his property away around 1173. So this was a sort of a pre-Reformation Protestant organization. Uh, they preached the doctrine of apostolic poverty. Uh, this doctrine of apostolic poverty teaches that the road to perfection is to live without ownership of lands or accumulation of money. So it's not Protestant in a focus on the evangelical gospel of being saved by grace through faith in Christ, but it is Protestant in that they're protesting the church. And it was protesting the excesses of the church. Now, not surprisingly, the medieval Roman Catholic Church declared the doctrine of apostolic poverty to be heretical in the 14th century, but it remained popular with the common people. 
So the Protestant scholars uh, tend to suspect that the medieval Roman Catholic Church declared apostolic, well, like I said, that they, so they could just sort of hold on to their money. Now, whether, you know, it's hard to say why the Roman Catholic Church declared it heretical, but money was a big part of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, unfortunately. It's just, you know, I, I don't think I'm, I'm getting into a real <laughs> you know, uh, uh, debatable point. Now let's jump to the benefit of these Bibles. Luther, in fact, may have had some benefit by having these other German translations around, but the real foundation for his work was Erasmus's recently printed version of the Bible in the original Greek. Now, Erasmus was the first scholar to use the modern method of going through and uh, and finding the source documentation, because there's all these different versions of the Greek Bible that was available back then you know there's little fragments here and fragments so there's there. fra- but not just fragments there would be whole bibles okay and, and there is translation families where if you go and you have a set of tra- uh, bibles and they all carry the same it Id- unique moments yeah and and those all come from the same family and so the goal is as erasmus is taking all these different translations and even in his time, there wasn't nearly as many as we're dealing with now in textual criticism. But he thought, all right, if I have manuscript A, B, and C, he did not just choose to present manuscript A as the best manuscript. He would take the best of A, the best of B, and the best of C and produce D. And so over and over again, he's looking for the oldest and most reliable version. That's really what, uh, at least that's what I read. Was yeah, that... and, and so we, the, this is still the practice of textual criticism today, is to look at uh, wherever there's conflict in different manuscripts to say, uh, which choice can I make that best represents what the original autograph would have been? Yeah, yeah. So... So Luther, Luther's using this very good translation. This Greek Bible is the foundation of. So he's got a strong foundation to begin with, and then a certain amount of it is a good luck and timing. Luther started using was using the second edition, and it's the best version. It was an improvement from the first edition, and the third edition. So Luther's using the second edition. The third edition had some changes that Erasmus was pressured to put in to support certain theological beliefs. So we could say the second edition, at least during Luther's lifetime, represented the most neutral. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I was able to find, was that the second edition of Erasmus's Bible, what, the Greek Bible, was the one that was most true to the original text. And so Luther just, he just got lucky. He was using that second edition. And then when he translated from that, you know, it it worked out well for him. So what, what kicked off the project? Um, Well, he had already been translating uh, different parts of the Bible in 1517, six months before posting the 95 theses, Luther published a translation of seven penitential Psalms. And then between 1517 and 1522, he also published uh, sections of the Old and New Testament, uh, the translation of the Ten Commandments, uh, the Magnificat, the Lord's Prayer. So, so this is, in pieces, something he has been working on. We also know that Luther's friends in Wittenberg, especially Melanchthon, were asking him to translate the entire Bible. So the, the first mention of the project was in a personal mo- note to uh, John Lang that came out in December of 1521, only three months before he permanently left the Wartburg. So that's where the 11 weeks comes from. We, we, I think they're, they're timing it from that, that letter that he says, you know, I'm thinking about doing this, to when he arrives in, the, in Wittenberg with a completed first draft. And in December of 1521, he had made a stealth visit to Wittenberg, remaining in disguise. And probably during a discussion with Melanchthon, there had also been more motivation for him to make this translation. Now, we, we've mentioned that it wasn't the entire Bible. It was just the New Testament. Um, but still remarkable. Still absolutely remarkable. Um, the, the entire Bible was completed in 1534. So it was quite a ways off, about 13 more years, uh, 14 more, 12 more years, 12, 13 and more And during years. this time period, uh, as he's working on the Bible, he would regularly make effort to listen to people um, and see how they used language. So he'd go out like into the marketplace 
what the, and and he'd listen to the people talking to each other and really try and understand how people spoke in real world you know i remember trying to write a short story when i was in college and i found the most difficult thing to write was the dialogue because it was it was just hard to make it sound real yeah and so to hear that luther would go to the marketplace and observe and listen and use what he would find how they would use different words to shape the way he would translate, demonstrates that his desire was that the Bible would be understood by the people in the common language that they would find in the marketplace. Yeah, yeah. And so it brings into kind of a conflict with, you know, this high regard for the these and the thous and this Elizabethan language that Luther was far from that. He was very much, let's have it sound as earthy and real as is appropriate for the text. Yeah, yeah. So... Luther, Luther, like we said, he completed the first edition or first the first draft when. But it was won- a rough draft, a very rough draft. So he returns to Wittenberg and he works closely with Melanchthon and other scholars could provide a greater expertise. And so, so this is kind of a nice thing to hear is that this translation work doesn't happen all by himself. Yes, he does this work in the Wartburg, and if you go visit the Wartburg Castle, they've recreated the room where he did this. Uh, they have a whalebone, they have the inkwell, they have the desk there, although none of those items were actually uh, present. They've all brought them later back into the room. Right. Because over time, people didn't, at that time, they didn't realize how important and significant the room was where Luther had stayed. And so yeah. it wasn't until a couple hundred years later that they started trying to remanufacture the room. But you can go see that room. But even so, Luther ultimately gathers together a group that, uh, what did they call themselves, Mike? Uh, they, they call themselves uh, the, the Bible Club. And, and the Collegium Biblium. The so Collegium, the, oh, that's right. <laughs> the, get the Latin in. Uh, so the Bible. I already drank my beer, but you've got to drink. <laughs> the, the, the Friends of the Bible. The, the Bible Club. And Justice Jonas Bugenhagen, uh, who is the preacher in the city of Wittenberg. Uh, Cruciger uh, Aragalis and George Rohr, who was the first clergyman ordained by Luther. Uh, this is a core group. Uh, don't forget Melanchthon. Melanchthon and Melanchthon, was, yes. Melanchthon was uh, the, probably the, one of the best Greek scholars of that era. That was why he was brought to the University of Wittenberg, was to be a Greek professor, and so he's helpful. And then they also went to Splayton, who was the uh, chaplain and counselor to Frederick the Wise, who provided the names of the precious stones in the New Jerusalem found in the book of Revelation, right? Yeah, yeah. So it took them a few months to get the for the Bible club, the whole group of them, to get out the real final version of the New Testament. That came out in September of 1522. It almost makes me think of, like, say, the original Apple being done by Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak in the garage. And, you know, and there's all these computers that uh, companies that were gathered together, uh, get a few nerds together in a garage, and something magical happens. You get a bunch of college professors in Wittenberg together in a garage. Maybe they met in Wittenberg uh, around Melanchthon's table or yeah. uh, around Luther's table. But they're they're in a room and out comes um, something that is bigger than just the parts. The sum of the parts is bigger than any of what one of them could do by themselves. Yeah, it's really, uh, really impressive what they So it's released in September 1522. Um, and uh, the, of course, like we mentioned, the entire Bible didn't come out until uh, 1534. Uh, Luther didn't put his name on that first Bible. It wasn't called the Luther Bible. Although still in Germany, the you can get the Luther Bible. So as much as he may not have put his name on it, everyone else put his name. Yeah, on it. yeah. Uh, it, 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 but he he didn't. He kept his name off of it in recognition of the group. He always... So we may not. You know, I was thinking about this. How significant is it that there is a 16th century? translation of from greek to german uh maybe for us in america with english speaking we we may not recognize this but he standardized the german language the the court language of saxony which was largely and then the marketplace language of saxony now becomes um more common throughout all of germany yeah and you know 
the several dukes tried to outlaw the Bible. They they weren't at all happy with this idea of the common folk having the the Bible in their hands. But they and, weren't successful. And one duke uh, was in opposition to having Luther's name on it, so he commissioned one of his own scholars to translate the Bible. And he took essentially just Luther's translation and changed a few things and put his name on it. So then that translation could be sold in that land without Luther's name on it. <laughs> that was a Roman Catholic version. There, well, there's all, yeah, the Roman Catholic scholar of the time complained Luther's New Testament was so much multiplied and spread by printers that even tailors and shoemakers, yea, even women and ignorant persons, it's interesting that those two are put together, <laughs> yeah. um, had accepted this new Lutheran gospel and could read a little German, studied it with the great avidity as the fountain of all truth. Some committed it to memory and carried it about in their bosom. In a few months, such people deemed themselves so learned that they were not ashamed to dispute about faith in the gospel, not only with Catholic laymen, but even with priests and monks and doctors of divinity. Wow. Wow. How dangerous it is that the Bible was placed in their hands that even after a few months, they felt comfortable having theological discussions with the pastor. <laughs> dangerous, dangerous, dangerous times. Dangerous times. So, you know, even though it's difficult for us English speakers to really appreciate the Luther Bible, uh, there are a bunch of things that, that are still really, I thought, uh, very, very valuable for us. The introductions that Luther wrote to each book remain invaluable. And the Lutheran Study Bible that Concordia Publishing House published uh, largely quotes from those uh, prefaces that Luther wrote in their own prefaces to the books. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of those areas that if you if you want to read the Bible before you take on Romans, I know I found Luther's uh, preface to Romans very helpful in understanding Romans. He basically goes and gives uh, almost like a roadmap for what to expect. And so it's a, it's a great way to, you know, okay, this is what I'm going to be reading. This is how it's set up. This is how Paul approached things. And this is what to look for. It's a, it's, I personally found it very helpful. And his preface to the book of James is where he describes it as a book of straw. <laughs> so it's also helpful to see, even though he includes it, Yeah, he's got some struggle with it. Yeah, yeah. So, while Luther was working diligently in the Wartburg, the scholars in Wittenberg were also making changes, uh, eventually resulting in riots. To calm things down, Luther left the safety of the Wartburg. So, we'll be covering the events in Wittenberg along with Luther's return in our next episode. So, uh, I guess this is going to be sort of a, you know, we'll just sort of hold off. We're going to actually go back. We, we've talked about this period in the Wartburg in in the Wartburg. Now, now the next we'll, episode, we're going to go back to the beginning of the, the period in the Wartburg in Wittenberg, and we're going to cover it like that. So thanks to Josh Yegley and to St. Paul in Hamburg. Uh, we appreciate James Kittleson's book, Luther the Reformer. So, uh, Scott Hendricks, Martin Luther, Visionary Reformer. We, I reference that a lot, or we reference that a lot. This was a, a Philip Schaeff uh, put out a book, History of the Christian Church, Volume 7. That, that actually was a, I, I got a lot of good stuff out of that one. And Luther's works, uh, volume 32 is where he writes against Laudamus, and volume 35 is where you can find his prefaces to the books of the New Testament. Uh, used a little bit from Wikipedia this time, um, but uh, I think that pretty much covers everything. If you want to contact us, you can catch us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, let us know if you'd like to host a road trip. You can find um, articles and postings of our new episodes at graceontap-podcast.com. And you can also catch us on Facebook. Just place into the search window of Facebook, Grace on Tap Podcast, and you'll be able to find our Facebook page. Would appreciate if you write any reviews on, uh, on iTunes. really helps us get the word out. Uh, I think that does it. Prost. Prost. Prost.